Unreal. Uncensored. Unradio. Cliffcentral.com. You're listening to Heavy Petting on Cliffcentral.com every Wednesday from 10 a.m. till 11 a.m. with me, Leanne Mull. Thanks for listening today. Um, coming up today, we've got a place that I found where you can do your bit for conversation, conservation rather, and drink wine, which clearly I have been doing already. Um, also, are you pro or anti-trade in rhino horn? If you haven't decided yet, we've got an expert called Colin Bell who may be able to make you help up your mind. Or maybe, <laughs> no, you know what? I'm just going to start that sentence again. If you want to hear Colin Bell, he can help you Make up your mind about whether you are pro or anti-trade in rhino horn. Also coming up, a very unlikely pairing of a project for horseshoes, as well as a beauty and laser clinic, um, and that can get you a 550 rand laser voucher. So be sure to listen in. We start off with animals in the news, of course, as we always do. And uh, in a major feat for South Africa, the Two Oceans Aquarium in Cape Town has performed their first stingray blood transfusion on one of their sick stingrays. Here's the aquarium's Nicholas Nickel with News 24. We realized one of our stingrays was uh, quite pale and sick. And how we noticed that was the animal actually stops eating. So we decided to take the animal out and actually have a look to see what was going on. And we found that it had an ectoparasite, which is a monogenian flatworm that you find in the gills. So what we also noticed was labored breathing and... So what we did was we, we took one of the um, healthy stingrays, which is of the same species, of course, and we drew blood from the caudal vein from that animal and actually transfused it into the, to the sick animal. What we actually did was we drew blood from both animals, and what you actually do is you mix the blood, which you can pretty much do in humans as well, and actually see if the blood under the microscope, see if the blood clots or coagulates, if it doesn't, then you know you're actually okay and you can possibly get away with it. The stingray is doing absolutely fine. It's eating, it's healthy, it's not looking pale anymore. And, yeah, it was, it was a great success. In other aquatic animal news, a great white shark has been choked to death by a sea lion. The shark, which washed, washed up on an Australian beach, had a sea lion stuck in its throat, which likely caused its death. The four-meter white pointer was filmed thrashing just off the Coronation Beach coast north of Perth and was later found in the sand. The Western Australia Department of Fisheries has since revealed that the shark had no visible signs of injury or disease but had a large sea lion lodged in its throat. Research scientist Rory McCauley says that could explain why the shark was exhibiting such unusual behavior in shallow waters and that it's possible that the shark was trying to dislodge this blockage. So Macaulay says the shark's death could have been caused by two things. Firstly, the lodged sea lion may have damaged the shark's internal organs or impeded water flow into his gills. And then the shark may have accidentally become stranded in his attempts to get rid of the obstruction. In either way, it's an odd finish to a story that usually ends up with a dead sea lion and a full-bellied shark. Uh, It was Brad Tapper who filmed the shark as it struggled in shallow waters He says that a dog walker first noticed the shark when his pet refused to go into the water. Then after it beached itself, some onlookers did try to drag the shark out to sea using a large tow rope, but the animal soon returned to shore after that. To make things even more interesting, remembering that this shark was found in Western Australia, the shark was actually tagged in Southern Australia back in January. Just goes to show how incredibly mobile sharks are. Well, much further inland, in Sydney itself, 
a koala has survived a terrifying ride clinging to a car. Timberwolf, the koala, is lucky to be alive and has nothing more than a torn nail after an 88-kilometer ride down a busy Australian freeway hanging on to the bottom of a vehicle. The four-year-old male was struck by the car and then latched onto the car as it sped away, the family inside not knowing that they had a marsupial on board. But when they stopped almost 100 kilometers later, they did notice and they called the Australia Zoo Wildlife Hospital. So Timberwolf has been given painkillers for the torn nail and he's recovering in a tree at the zoo north of Brisbane as vets work out exactly where he grabbed hold of the car so that they can return him to the wild. Now, have you ever heard of an anteater? And here we we find that they're quite similar to our artvark. Have you ever heard of one of those killing a human? Well, just this week, it's been revealed that giant anteaters in Brazil killed two hunters in separate incidents. And this is raising concerns about the animal's loss of habitat and also the growing risk of dangerous encounters with people. These long-nosed hairy animals are not typically aggressive towards people and are considered a vulnerable species. However, they have poor vision, and if frightened, they may defend themselves with very long front claws, as long as pocket knives, in fact. Well, in both these cases, both were farmers, and both were hunting, and were both attacked or wounded by cornered animals. Here's something that caught my attention. Do you or anyone know of anyone who takes their dogs everywhere that, that they go, even to work? Even if you have to catch a plane to work, you take your dogs? Well, the BBC Radio 4's presenter, Dame Jenny Murray, refuses to leave her two chihuahuas at home, and so they accompany her when she travels to broadcast her weekly show. As a result, the BBC is spending thousands of pounds on first-class travel for the dogs. So Murray's pet chihuahuas are named Butch and Frida, and they've been treated to a lavish lifestyle at a time when the corporation is axing more than 400 jobs. So the 64-year-old presenter admits to turning down dinner dates unless the pets come to, and this is what happens with her journey. She's taken from her home to a train station with her pets in a chauffeur-driven car, and they're also treated to a first-class train travel ride. Um, Another driver then collects the dogs and then takes them to a friend's house to be cared for um, as Murray spends the night in a hotel. In her book entitled My Boy Butch, Murray wrote... Butch never got used to being left alone. Every morning there'd be the same woeful ritual of the haunting little white figure standing, head bowed, ears forward, in the middle of the sitting room, gently begging me not to leave him. Murray has limited mobility following a hip replacement, um, following chemotherapy for cancer. This dog really is treated very well. Um, And so Murray says that she began to adjust her lifestyle to accommodate her chihuahuas. Um, a BBC spokesman, of course, says, spokesperson rather says Murray reimburses the corporation for any personal expenses and the car which drops the dogs off. But naysayers do have their doubts. I think I should be speaking to a certain Mr. Gareth Cliff at Cliff Central about bringing little Joey in to work every Wednesday. So, you know, those pair of distressed jeans that you have in your closet um, and they think that you make they make you look kind of badass. Well, I bet that they're nowhere near as hardcore as the newest gene trend coming out of Japan. Zoo genes are the first of their kind to be designed by dangerous animals. The company that makes them takes long swatches of denim, then they tie these around rubber tires and other play items, and they let a team of lions, tigers, and bears go at it. And once the lions, tigers, and bears are done gnawing at the pieces of cloth and ripping them up, the designers then make the cloth into denim, into 
a pair of jeans, which are then sold. I know it's both ridiculous and kind of cool, but it's uh, quite a thing to have bears and lions designing your distressed ripped jeans. Okay, time to move on to our Helper Horny Friend segment, where we discuss everything about rhinos. And uh, we continue our series of interviews with rhino conservationist Colin Bell. Um, I had spoken to him in Hout Bay about the pro-trade lobby versus the anti-traders and also how rhino trade would work and what the economists have to say. Yeah, Leanne, it's a very, very, very uh, sad story, this whole rhino debacle. And I think part of the problem is that as South Africans, we don't sit on the same side of the table. You know, we've got all these park officials who've, um, you know, coming, a lot of them coming close to retirement and they're having death threats because they're doing their job. Their families are being threatened. By, by poachers. By poaching, poachers, poaching syndicates. And when you're in the front line, you scrabble anyway for an answer. Anything which looks good, which could potentially solve the problem, becomes something which you latch onto. And uh, so a lot of our park officials have now sort of latched onto the potential silver bullet, which is to go and trade rhino horn in the effort to stop poaching. And we're now a country which is polarized because on one side we've got people who are saying we must not trade at all, and we've got park officials who, understandably, under huge stress, are looking for solutions. And the, the trade lobby, or not to trade lobby, is now starting to dominate the whole rhino conversation. And that's polarizing us. And the more we polarize ourselves in South Africa, the more confused we are, and also the more confusing messages we're sending to Asia. And the syndicates are loving this. And uh, so the park officials have taken this whole story to trade rhino horn as a solution. They've then convinced South African National Parks. South African National Parks have now convinced Cabinet, and Cabinet has actually said this is going to be our policy. And uh, the problem is, at the moment, the legislation around the world is that we won't trade rhino horn. CITES, which is made up of 180 different countries, they call them parties, 180 parties, and the the ability to trade or not to trade is governed by the CITES convention and the CITES rules. And the law right now is that we can't trade rhino horn. So if we want to go and change the law, we've got to get 67% of all the countries in who belong to CITES, and there's 180, so 121 countries have to come together and agree that we're going to change the law. So none of the 120 countries are allowed to trade in rhino horn? There's no, none of the 180. Nobody in the world is nobody allowed to trade. Nobody in the world trade. is, okay. That's the issue. So if we're going to change the law, 121 countries, uh, 67% of CITES have to agree to change it. Now, we had a conference in London called by the two princes, and uh, over 70 countries were represented. And at that London conference on illicit uh, trading of rhino and elephants and other animals, it was unanimously agreed not to trade animals for 10 years, the key species, mainly elephant, rhino, and pangolin. But for 10 years, those 70 countries, 72 countries said no. All we need is now 60 countries to veto any proposal to trade rhino horn, and the law cannot be changed. So... The chances of South Africa getting the world to get CITES to change legislation is almost gone. It's almost zero, zero, zero chance. And yet Cabinet and the South African parks, our policies are that we will go and persuade the world to go and change this law so that we can trade rhino stocks. And the thinking is quite, is quite good. 
on the surface of things. And the thinking is that you take our rhino stocks, we go and sell them to the world, and we take that money, put it into conservation, and we drive down the price, and then we take the poaching syndicates out of it because we're now trading to the world. That sounds, sounds, sounds fantastic. Like, yeah, it makes on paper, and, it looks great. And you can understand why the park officials, who aren't economists, on the surface, it looks fantastic. Let's, let's go and do it. Mm. And so because it's simple economics, it's 101 economics, it sounds good. And so if everybody's bought into this process within parks and within our government, the problem is it's so simplistic. And when you take simplistic economic models on such a delicate animal like a rhino, because essentially in total we've only got 25,000 rhinos in the world, but 25,000 rhinos don't fit into a couple of billion Asians. doesn't matter how you dice it. If we start to trade, we just don't have enough rhino around. So what's happened is that this process was driven through parks into sand parks into government and cabinet, and now officially policy, although they're starting to, the minister's backtracking a bit and saying she wants to consult and she wants to have a little panel of ten to go and evaluate and make decisions from that. But the panel is all made up of people who are rabidly pro-trade. And essentially there's a couple of guys, and what's really driving this there's a few individuals who own lots of rhino. There's one fellow who owns a thousand rhino, and he farms them. And his rhino horn are either worth nothing under today's legislation, or if South Africa is allowed to trade rhino horn, his rhino stocks and his horns are worth three billion rand. Changes everything. Yeah, not not m a b. Yeah, yeah. This is three billion rand. So you can guess where his focus is, and understandably he's pushing his agenda, mm. which is to go and change legislation. And he, he was. Um, he's very compelling in his arguments because they use Economics 101. But what's happened recently is a, a sort of whole anti-trade lobby has started to wake up because the anti-trade lobby is not really a lobby. It's a whole lot of people who are in the rhino world, but they don't um, have any vested they interest. They don't have any pull in it either, do they? So, yeah, and also we don't have any money to be made. So there's a whole lot of folks who are on the fringes of this thing who are fanatical rhino people but don't have a vested interest, don't have funds, who've suddenly woken up, hang on, there's what's going on. But fortunately, a bunch of economists overseas took this example as a lovely way to go and play with economic theory. I mean, this is perfect. Can you imagine some professor overseas getting in there and sort of playing around with uh, economics and sort of applying today's market forces and economic theory to this? And uh, there's been a couple of papers, one written by a bunch of Australian economists, and they said trade can't work, and they gave all the reasons, and I'll get to that. And uh, just uh, last month, a new paper came out uh, by Professor Nadal uh, via Manchester uh, Manchester University and Maastricht, and all peer-reviewed it and everything, and it really drives trucks into the holes of the pro-trade lobby. So we're now in a situation that we've got a very polarized uh, rhino world, where on the one hand we've got the pro-traders and we've got the anti-traders on the other side. How do, how do they stack up against each other? Where is, where is all the power sitting? The power sitting with the pro-traders, because they've managed to infiltrate all the way up and get their policies into cabinets. So now what the anti-traders, and there was there have been two polls done in the travel industry. The travel industry was never consulted in this process. And yet the travel industry is They're, probably the yeah. closest to this whole thing. I mean, it's extraordinary. They weren't consulted. Doesn't but make uh, sense. in the travel industry, uh, two polls have been done. One which was um, through the sort of uh, internet media. There's a whole news system in the travel industry. Every day we get a whole news of what's happening. And so they polled that. And it's from 
travel people around the world who deal with Africa. And 80% said no trade. 20% said yes. And at a recent conference here in Cape Town where we had a, um, a whole lot of internationals, a, a very f- fabulous trade show called We Are Africa. And same story, about 80% said no trade and 20% said trade. And yet in the conservation world, it's almost 100% for trade. Yeah. So we've got very, very polarized situation. And that's what the syndicates are thriving on. Because so long as there's a hint of trade, I mean, there's every incentive to go and stockpile rhino horn. Because one thing's for sure, once rhino extinct, are extinct, can you imagine the value of a rhino horn? At the yeah. moment, when it's a strange. The, other, the conventional figure has been around about 65,000 US dollars per kilogram. And an average rhino horn is about four kilograms. So an average rhino horn at retail prices in Vietnam is around about 3 million rand. Mm. I heard the other day that the figure might have gone up to 90,000 US per kilogram. I mean, so that's you talking over 4 million rand per horn. Now, as the rhino gets more and more uh, sort of on the threshold of extinction, I mean, people are going to start stockpiling overseas and going long on rhino horn. And can you imagine what's going to happen then? Because once they start stockpiling and it's... uh, and there's no more rhinos. Those rhino horns are worth a fortune. Yeah. Well, that's Colin Bell, expert in rhino conservation, um, and that brings an end to our Help a Horny Friend section. Let's move on now to conservation conversation here on Cliff Central. Remember, if you do want to give us a call, it's 0861 And um, you can also message us straight to the show on WeChat on the Cliff Central channel. Um, message to show is the little knopi you have to drink. Um, so now, uh, Hank Chalmers is a guy who founded a place called Eagle Encounters. I was very, very pleased to meet him last week in Cape Town. Um, I wasn't pleased about the weather. And as you'll probably hear in this clip, I was facing torrential wind and horizontal rain um, while I interviewed him at Eagle Encounters. The very nice thing about Eagle Encounters, it combines four of my favorite things, wine, animals, conservation and wine. It's Eagle Encounters at Spear outside Stellenbosch. So at at the uh, wine farm, um, Spear actually donated a generous piece of land to Hank and Tracy Chalmers, who set up this uh, rehabilitation place. And it focuses on the release, conservation, education, uh, rehabilitation of uh, birds of prey. So lots of big eagles to be seen there, lots and lots of baby owls that you can touch and hold too. And you can even have a big eagle sitting on your arm if you want to. He does shows as well. He's a falconer um, and does some really interesting shows, which include a show with a secretary bird who um, kickboxes him. <laughs> so it's, I, I don't know. It's absolutely crazy. If ever you're at Spear, do take a look. Um, anyway, I chatted to him amidst lots of wind. So if you hear that in the recording, you'll understand why. Um, keep in mind that this is a non-profit organization, Eagle Encounters, self-funded. So if you do want to support them, um, you can Google Eagle Encounters at Spear and you'll find lots of way that you, ways you, you can help out there. So anyway, I asked Hank what exactly happens there and also if it's possible to develop a relationship with a bird of prey. We do three things. We do Our main objective is uh, rehabilitation, you know, getting in the injured birds. We probably handle about 95% of the Western Cape. You know, so anything that comes in... Na- um, nature conservation, animal welfare groups, vets, individuals, you know, some here. We specialize in birds of prey because it's very different the way we work with a bird of prey to a non-bird of prey, you know. So that's, that's the rehab side. Um, then the, um, the education side, obviously we get birds we can't release. 
that are birds that are confiscated, that are hand raised or, or on fly properly and so on. Now what was happening, the guys were just euthanizing them. Can't go back into the world, euthanize it. And I'm a falconer, so I'm able to actually train birds. So we said, well, let's take these birds, train them, and do education. So we do flying shows and all of that with them. Those are the non-releasables, you know. Yeah. And then, of course, now it has to be funded. So how do you fund it? Mm. So now that becomes the ecotourism side. So then people can come in, check the birds out, watch the shows, all of that. Mm. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, what, what we do here. Because this, this land was donated by Spear, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, are, do you, are, are they still involved in the project at all? No, look, the purely Spear donates the land to us yeah. and electricity and water. And um, obviously it's a, it's a mutual benefit because they have a hotel and gives their guests something different to do. Um, makes one look nice and green having a rehab centre around. And it... There is a business aspect that we have to look at, you know, otherwise you don't survive, and that is the feet. So having Spear here is nice because people are coming, the feet are here, your marketing isn't there, it has to be that heavy, it helps a lot. So there's a lot of saving. It's a nice mutual benefit on both sides. Okay, so what types of birds do you have here, and do you have any that you've never had before? Um, look, the Western Cape is a bit different to the rest of the country. We generally have quite a lot of a few species. So here, spotted eagle owls will get in 100, 150 a year. You know. um, most of the adults are um, A lot of babies coming in. Barn owls, 50 to 80 a year. A lot of um, stables being broken down, nesting in stupid places. You know, and then they come in easy to raise. Babies are pleasure to work with. Um, then, um, yeah, then just the normal um, yellowbill carts, uh, African goshawks, black sparrowhawks. Quite a bit of the normal species we get there. Um, I'd say that the strange ones that we've had coming in was African hawk eagle, which is roughly 2,000 kilometers away from where they found. Mm-hmm. Um, what else we had? We had a hobby falcon that's come in, which is something that's very rare. Uh, 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 oh, the other one was a, um, a honey buzzard. Now, they do migrate through here, right on the edge. This one flew into a guy's window. Beautiful bird. Yeah. You know? uh, but he was good to go, so we released him the next day. You know. Okay. Um, do you form relationships with these birds? Do you, do you have any in your home? Yeah, look, I'm a falconist. My home's full of birds. <laughs> it's just full of animals. Um, you, you do. The re- see, most people don't know birds of prey, so the relationship, they're based upon a dog. You know, mm. but it's more of a cat relationship. Mm. Um, well, I mean, I th- I've always thought that owls look very similar to cats. Mm. Yeah. Uh, their, their ears, their ears are quite um, full of expression as That's well. Right, you yeah. can tell their emotions. And used for communication too. Oh, there so, you go. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You see, uh, if you play with a dog, a dog will play with you for love. You don't have to feed it. Who the prey is not like this. This is a lazy thing. Mm. This is a thing that sits and waits for opportunities. You know, uh, the. Ex- Expenditure of energy is a big problem in nature. You right. waste energy, you, you're dead. You know. Mm. So a bird of prey, I think you can equate it to a lion. A lion sits in a tree for for a week. Uh, sorry, sits under a tree for a week. Gets hungry, kills, fills his belly. Now he doesn't run around and say, "Hey, I'm a lion." He lies under the tree for another week. Gets as much out of that meal as you can. Mm. Well, a raptor is exactly the same. Okay. Now, um, which does have certain problems when you come to rehabilitation. Because once you've mended the bird, you can't release it. I mean, anybody who's ever had a broken leg will know your muscles are gone. You mm. can't run, let it you're battling to walk. Mm. Well, this is something that's got to hunt. So how, if you release it, it's dead. Mm. So as a falcon, we're able to take the bird, train it, get it flying, call it physio if you want, build it up, 
get it to that point where it's flying well and then release it off. We get a lot of birds coming in um, that have been hit by cars that are just concussed. Nothing wrong with the bird, you know. Yeah. Keep it a day, check it over, and let it go again. It's really, it's not a thing. My gosh, that wind! I tell you, I was hanging on with my nails onto bits of wood. Um, the rain was coming in horizontally, and we had two little walls of wood that were sheltering us. Um, but anyway, that's Hank Chalmers, and he's at Eagle Encounters. Um, I'll bring you more of his stuff, but hopefully we can um, numb out some of that that wind sound. Although it has it has stuck with me, I am a little bit sick from it. I don't I don't know how people handle it, don't they? Honestly, lots of wine. That's all I can say. So uh, Hank Chalmers with more with him next week. Um, and as we continue our conservation conversation on heavy petting, these are five simple steps uh, to help bees. A lot of people don't realize that the uh, bee population is struggling. And uh, it doesn't necessarily just mean that there won't be pretty little bees to look at or to hear or, or to teach people about. Um, it actually affects our food because they are insect pollinators. Um, so these steps to help bees don't just apply to bees anyway. They, they, there are over 100, well, sorry, 1,500 other species of insect pollinators, including hundreds of types of butterflies and moths. And uh, they provide variety in our diets and some crops like raspberries, apples and pears. Particularly, they need the insect pollination to produce good yields of high quality fruit. So here's how you can help bees. Number one, you can grow more flowers, shrubs and trees in your garden or even little pot plants. Um, number two, leave patches of land in your garden to grow wild um, because plants like stinging nettles and dandelions, they provide food to other sources. Um, example, caterpillars will eat the leaves off of those um, and they also provide a breeding place for butterflies and moths. Number three, you can cut grass less often, so just let it grow wild a bit and allow the plants to flower. Number four, avoid disturbing or destroying nests or hibernating insects. Um, and that's in places like bare soil, in trees, in dead wood, or in walls. So even though you want to use a stick, there's that urge, you know, to, to, to fiddle with things in walls, just don't. Um, also, the last step, think very carefully about whether you use pesticides or not, especially where pollinators are active or nesting or where plants are in flower. And uh, that's it from our conservation conversation section. And we move now on to doggy style. And to kick it off, I've got two guests in here. One's a boy, one's a girl. One's Robin, one's Rob. So um, without getting too confused, we're calling Robin the girl and Rob the boy. And uh, they come from a place called Stag Bar. Um, it's not a bar where you drink. It's got nothing to do with stags or bachelors. It's got to do with... Um, antlers of things that look like reindeers or are reindeers. And apparently there was a lot of confusion about all of this, as you can hear, I'm terribly confused, at the World of Dogs and Cats Expo. And uh, this is why you guys are here, because I received an email from a very exasperated Robin who said, people just don't understand what this is. So please, Robin, explain to us. Well, it does actually have a lot to do with bachelors, because your stag deer will grow his elaborate horns to impress, well, they're not actually horns, sorry, his elaborate crown to impress the ladies. Each year, he'll grow a larger set so the ladies can see who they'd like to go for based on his crown. So each year, he sheds his set, and within four months, he grows from his little stumps, which are not attractive to the ladies, to his (laughs) enormous set, which, you know, the ladies know. Big crown, big man. Well, that's kind of cool. I mean, with with humans, um, they just stay the same all all their life. No improvement each year. No No improvement of crowns. No big crowns. Okay, so what what are you doing with these big crowns? 
Um, well, I think it's just important to say that they are not culled. Uh, these are naturally shed antlers, so it's from deer that don't need them anymore. Um, whereas some other competition uh, brands are, sell culled from culled animals, so okay. nothing is hurt in the process of acquiring these. And um, there are ethical standards to, so that we don't infect the vi- environment around it, such as the ecology from porcupines and mice and things that do eat the stag bars okay. um, or the antlers. Just to explain to you, I've got in my hand... Um, pieces of of sawn antler, um, which are used for what exactly? I mean, they're beautiful. They look like pieces of trees. They look like branches, and um, some are shaped um, very phallically. Um, <laughs> some have three points, some have two. What are these used for? Well, it makes a phenomenal dog chew. It is... Uh-huh. It's, it is true bone, so it's got calcium, potassium, and all the minerals you need. It's naturally raw, so it's a great dog chew from that point. There's no preservatives or processing to get the product to the dog. And, yeah, they just chew. It's pretty much a gobstopper for dogs. He's going to slowly work his way through the outside, gnawing and gnawing. As they're salivating and chewing, the marrow will rehydrate and release more flavor, and obviously the marrow is very nutrient-dense. So it's a great way to keep your dog busy for a good couple of weeks, leading on to months, depending how how much of an intense chewer he is. Because, I mean, this thing is heavy. It's really heavy. It almost looks artificial because it's, it's and it's so hard. It's, it's the hardest substance I've ever felt besides enamel. Yeah. In the wild, like in Europe, where the deers are shedding the antler, you've got porcupines, mice, and other small ground squirrels will actually gnaw on this as well as a calcium source. So although it's very hardcore, if you imagine that a mouse is able to slowly, you know, chew through it and grind mm. bits off and get the nutritional value, it's... Although it's very hard, it's a very safe chew. I broke off a piece of my tooth this morning. I'm not even joking. <laughs> and just thinking about writing this. Were you me... opening a wine bottle? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was doing. Um, so they're actually quite attractive little things to have lying around. I mean, when I think about hooves and bones and um, all of those sort of things, firstly, they, they become very soggy and they stink. Exactly. They've got this horrible burnt hair smell that give me, it gives me a headache. That's where your antler is different. So horn is keratin, like your fingertail, your fingernails and your hair. Obviously, oh, if you you've can, got fingertails as well. Yeah, I mean, fingertails, also keratin. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so, yeah, they're, so they're there's, natural. There's no nutritional value, obviously, if you sat and ate your hair and your fingernails, you wouldn't get anywhere. So this is where the antlers differ from horns, where horns are permanently attached and grow throughout an animal's entire life. I see. And are the keratin, whereas antler grows as cartilage, mineralizes to form bone, and then each year is shed. So we, we don't really know much. I mean, do we get these in South Africa? This is actually the first time we just started bringing them in in June. But worldwide, they've been going for about four years that they've been popular as a chew now. Mm. Okay, great. So look, they come in all different shapes and sizes. There's some here with bits of rubber on them as well and bits of rope. So I suppose you could use it to tug and to play with also your animal too. Also great for like training retriever dogs because they can scent hunt. If you soak the antler in water overnight, you can then use it for scent hunting as well. Okay, I'm keen to use one of these um, with my little miniature pincher, Joey. I mean, he'd look ridiculous chewing one of these things. We um, do have the little small ones because oh, yeah. if you imagine the thicker pieces are from near the, the deer's head and then as his antlers get thinner towards the end, those are great chews for your smaller dogs. So there's chew sizes for chihuahuas, teething puppies, right up to hardcore amstaffs, your rotties, your real, you know, your real power jaw chewer dogs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could give it to Joey to take to the park, but I think the other animals animals will get jealous. <laughs> so I think I'm going to wait for the product to really, you know, 
get widely used before I t- just give it to him. He'll get attacked by other animals, I'm sure. He's scared as it is. Okay, so where can we get these from? If you go to stagbars.co.za, there's a list of stockists. We're only in a couple of stores at the moment. If the stores aren't anywhere near you, you can just order them directly and we courier them straight to your door. Okay. And just go over this with us again um, because Robin was saying in her email, a lo- number of people were coming up to her and saying, you know, do you skit boka to get these things? <laughs> <laughs> we actually had a guy uh, come up to us at Wodak with a springbok uh, head in the packet to oh, try and sell us the horns. No. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's and I mean, now we're saying horns are completely different to antlers. Yes, yes completely okay. different. Um, but we do need to just say that it, it, it's very important that you choose an appropriate size for your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, it, if you do give your bulbul uh, a, a medium, he might um, hurt himself or swallow it because okay. it is a lot smaller. So it is very important to um, choose an appropriate size. And obviously size. as it gets ground down, you need to monitor the size of it and yes. discard it when necessary. Exactly. Um, you need to treat it as you would a kid with a toy. You yeah. need to watch and monitor. The smaller it gets, obviously, the higher the risk yes. of of um, choking. But we haven't had any issues all over the world um, with with stag bars. And again, it it is a DEFRA approved product, which mm-hmm. is uh, it's the UK Council yeah. of Agriculture, so they ensure that and they're it's even more strict than the South Africa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it it's a very ethical um, product, okay. where it, it nothing is killed. Yeah. yeah, they do in Europe. You need to approve and you get issued a permit that makes you allowed to collect a certain amount of antler per year from reserves, just to obviously preserve the food chain with the squirrels and stuff mentioned earlier that are also making use of the discarded antler. And besides that, these make a really good weapon. I think if yeah. you threw this at your boyfriend, he'd never do <laughs> whatever he was it. doing again. <laughs> yeah, guys, thanks so much for coming in to explain this to us. Um, as I say, they're really quite attractive. It would look like you have a couple of branches lying around your house. Um, and that's a lot better than these stinky hoof things that give you headaches. Can we just say, sorry, Leanne, that yeah. it doesn't stink at all okay, and good. it doesn't mess Even like when they've had it for a couple of months, it's not a blood or a skin product, and those are the things that decay and start to provide odor. So ah. there's no stinks, there's no stain. They can chew it on a white carpet. There's not going to be any gross snotty bits left behind. Finally. <laughs> and how long have deer been around for? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, so, yes, you can go and check out more uh, at stagbars.co.za. Fantastic. Um, one more thing in our doggy style section of the show. Um, we've been taking a look at the number of breeds that are popular in South Africa. So the 10th most popular dog breed in South Africa is the Pomeranian. In ninth place was the Beagle. In eighth, the Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Seventh, is the miniature schnauzer, and we spoke to Damon Calvario about that last week because he has a couple of his own. And today we look at sixth place, which is the bull terrier. Here's what Animal Planet's Dogs 101 says about the bull terrier. The bull terrier has been described as a three-year-old child in a dog suit. Busy, busy, busy. What can I get into? Keep me entertained. The clownish antics of these dogs have drawn fans that include the powerful, President Theodore Roosevelt had one, the royal, England's Princess Anne has two, and the famous, the dogs themselves. Most well-known, maybe Spuds McKenzie, who reigned as the spokesdog for Bud Light. Spuds McKenzie was actually a female dog, and she didn't like beer. Of course, dogs shouldn't be drinking beer, but that's just a side note. 
As the name implies, the Bull Terrier is part Bulldog and part Terrier. They were bred in 19th century England for the then popular pastime of dog fighting and were called the gladiator of the dog world. But they were disappointing in the ring. They were actually pretty successful, however, in the rat killing ring. In 1850, an English dog dealer created the White Bull Terrier, which became a fashionable pet. A cross between the Old Bull Terrier, the English White Terrier, and other breeds, rumored to include Dalmatian, Collie, and Borzoi, resulted in the smaller, more elegant dog we know today. Today, these personable dogs come in a variety of coat colors, but are most easily identified by their egg-shaped head, which slopes to a Roman nose. Scientifically, their unique head shape is due to the fact that the Bull Terrier's skull has no indentations in the dorsal ventral nose bend, so the skull is rounded and sloping. Another unique feature, their triangular eyes. They are the only recognized breed to have them. The Bull Terrier is not a big dog. Their average weight is 45 to 50 pounds, and it's mostly muscle. Pound for pound, the Bull Terrier has more muscle than any breed of dog. The whole package adds up to one charismatic canine. These delightful dogs have charisma and are great companions. But they're an active breed and will do well in an apartment only with vigorous daily exercise. Bull Terrier puppies must be checked for deafness. They are also prone to a myriad of health issues, including heart and kidney problems, slipped kneecaps, skin allergies, epilepsy, and OCD. You'll see bull terriers chasing their tail, although that might seem kind of funny, it's really OCD. Grooming is easy. They have a short, dense coat that only requires occasional brushing. These are smart dogs with strong personalities. Training will be less of a challenge with structure and consistency. I don't think a bull terrier is a dog for a novice to own. And they're loyal dogs who become attached to their owners. They do well with an active older family who can provide companionship and supervision. They just have too strong of a personality for a lot of kids in the house. So in general, the bull terrier is an energetic dog who will do well in an apartment with regular exercise. They have a list of health issues, but grooming is a breeze. They make delightful companions and a good pet for active families with older children. Well, now we know five of the most popular dog breeds in South Africa. Um, so next week, we'll take a look at number five and make our way down to the most popular breed at number one. So, yes, you're listening to Heavy Petting on Cliff Central. If you'd like to call us, 861 189 um, and uh, we finish off our doggy style part of the show with a sweet, sweet little story. We know that dogs are capable of doing some amazing things. They've taught us about compassion and connection and mindfulness. And despite the fact that dogs have been regarded as man's best friend, it appears that they're also thoughtful when it comes to caring for their fellow canine companions, not only their little puppies, but dogs they don't even know that aren't, they're not even related to. Meet Lilica. She's a junkyard dog from Brazil. She has a heart of gold. Every single day, she walks a total of eight miles, it's about 16 Ks, in order to find food to feed herself and her friends. And one day, she met a very kind teacher named Lucia, who fed her some food in a plastic bag. And then the dog Lilica realized that she could devour some of the food and then take the remains home with her. And so she began to follow this routine every time she was given food. 
Some people say that border collies and poodles are the most intelligent dogs, but the sheer scale of Lilika's abilities make her one of the most amazing dogs on the planet, no matter what she is. That's, uh, I just thought it was a really remarkable story. Um, now time for what's new, Pussycat. And uh, what is new is that I have finally discovered, yay, why one of my four cats loves to lick plastic. I really thought she was the only cat in the world who did it. And I'm very relieved after I googled cat licks plastic to find that there are millions. Um, it's, a, it's a feline obsession that, that cats have with all things plastic. Um, but we know it's not all fun and games. It can be dangerous. So um, there's one thing that I've, I've learned to keep in mind, and that's to never leave out shopping bags. Let's just find out exactly what happens here. I mean, besides the fact that shopping, your cat licking shopping bags while you're lying in bed is horribly irritating, um, try and keep that in mind all the time and, and keep your shopping bags out of the way um, because some cats take this little obsession so far that they'll actually eat the shopping bags, resulting in huge, huge problems and that can even be fatal. So here are the uh, top seven reasons why cats lick plastic. Firstly, they are enticing food smells. These are in our, our shopping bags, okay? That these bags are porous, and they trap the odor of whatever was inside them. So cats can even sense this, and from anything from meat to fish to sandwiches in plastic, they'll any faintest whiff of anything, they'll lick the plastic to try and... Um, get some of the food smell going, and this is where the danger comes in of them actually swallowing plastic. There's that crinkly fun factor, um, and that's the uh, all kind of cool noises that crinkly bags make that cats obviously love and that drive us mad. Then there's the cornstarch factor. Now, more and more plastic shopping bags have been made of biodegradable materials that contain cornstarch, and some cats seem to find the smell and taste of cornstarch very attractive. There are also very lickable lubricants on all plastic bags. They're treated with um, a number of lubricants which are derived from something called tallow. Um, and even lanolin, that's the oil that makes sheep coats feel greasy, is used in the production of plastic. These can all be very tempting to your cat. Um, also gelatine used in photo emulsions. So if you've seen your cat licking photos from those old Kodak moments, now you know why. Um, it's obviously also a texture thing. Um, some experts think that the smooth texture of plastic feels good on a cat's tongue um, and also think that the uh, temperature of the plastic may be a factor too. Um, then there are pheromones. Some plastics contain chemicals that may mimic pheromones and it's possible that licking plastic could be extension of a reaction which animals have to pheromones when they want to get it all into their mouth and all into their um, olfactory nerves and, and, and uh, then urinate on them. Yes, they do. So if you find your cat peeing on plastic bags, that's why. They're actually pheromones in plastic bags. And uh, another thing is that some cats just have a little bit of a mental short circuit. So some cats get into the habit of eating non-food items. It's a condition called pica, and it's sometimes considered a mental compulsion rather than physical. And uh, it sometimes is thought of an attempt to try and get necessary nutrients that aren't present in the cat's diet. So if you think of any other ways that you think um, cats seem to like licking plastic or if your cat licks plastic, let me know so that I know I'm not the only one in the world, please. And time now for our cause of the week. I was very, very lucky to take part in an amazing cause of the week um, this week, which was called Project Pedicure. Um, I did tell you about last week. Um, basically, I went along to SED, which is the Society for Animals in Distress, and uh, sat down and had, had a, a human pedicure right next to a horse who was having a pedicure. 
Um, it was loads of fun, and I actually realized that yeah, horse pedicures seem to be very similar to human pedicures, and that even the same tools are used, just obviously on a much bigger scale. So um, in studio now, I have two people who got together and put this project together called Project Pedicure. I've got Svea Herman, who's the owner of the Laser Boutique, and I've got From Animals in Distress, Heather. So welcome to the two of you. Thank you. So it was so much fun. Thanks for having me there. And um, I think it, this was even probably something that you noticed was everyone's fascination with watching a horse being shooed. And that's not saying shoe horse like shoe fly, get away. It's putting shoes on horses. So perhaps, Heather, you can explain to us firstly the importance of shoeing horses and why these horses in particular need help from um, uh, extra funds in order to have them shooed. Yeah, and the, the shoeing of our horses is extremely important, especially with the work that they do. They deliver coal within the Tembisa area. The communities in the area use it as heating and for heating and cooking. And these horses are on the road from about 4 until 6 in the morning, and then again from about 3 until 7 in the afternoon. Um, they travel on tar. They travel on all sorts of environments. And... Um, they actually wear their shoes out in a week. On a normal sure. um, equine uh, uh, care, you would maybe shoe the horse every month. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, we're shoeing 180 horses. And this is all from um, funding? This all, is all, all from funding. We yeah. are uh, uh, solely dependent on donors. And this project has been going since 2004. And every horse is shot. And, um, yeah. Oh, and so that's the past tense of shoot. It's not shooed. Yeah, no. You're no, shod. shod. Yeah. It's just me. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> so, um, okay, so I watched the whole process happen. Um, and it seems that you use a tool to take off the old shoe. Yes. Then there is quite a bit of digging and prodding to check for any um, strange objects or anything What's that might cause an infection yes. yeah. um, in the hoof. And then uh, a, a huge, massive file. If you think you've got bad calluses on your feet, don't worry at all. Mm-hmm. This file's huge. It comes out and um, the, the, the horse will have its, its hooves filed all the way around. They even change color. Um, so the dark bits come off and you'll see the white bits come out from underneath. And then a new shoe is put on, which has to first be measured um, because each horse's foot or, or hoof is a different shape and their front ones are different shapes to their back ones as well. See how much I learned? Um, Very impressed. And, well, the, <laughs> and then those are fitted and then nailed right into the foot. And I mean, I was watching this process for a while and I, I was looking for any sign of grimacing on the horse's face. But in this case, um, the horse that we were shoeing had almost closed his eyes and was almost drifting off to sleep underneath the tree. So he seemed to not worry about it at all. It's not painful at all. There's no pain, the end. Uh, the, the center of the foot is called the frog and where you were the talking frog? Yes, okay. <laughs> and so the, the uh, um, instrument we use to clean the, the hoof itself takes out all the compaction around the frog. The frog is the, the nervous system of the foot or, or the beginning of that nervous system. And so the, the actual hoof part is much like the, um, the keratin that was uh, talked about previously. Yes, with our stag bars. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's no pain involved. Mm-hmm. And because we're shoeing quite often, um, obviously the nails that are, are, are put in to secure the shoes, um, they're putting at different um, points. And so the, the, the hoof itself grows quite quickly. Mm. And so we never have a broken hoof or any damage 
a course through okay. that shooting. So these horses have been lucky enough to be shod by you for years. Um, and a lot of this has been made possible by one very clever little lady who has her own very successful business called the Laser Boutique. And, uh, yeah, this is where the pedicure comes in, okay? <laughs> so human pedicures next to horse pedicures. And this entire concept was devised by um, Svia, who is here from the Laser Boutique. So if you can tell us a little bit about how you thought about this. I mean, it seems kind of obvious, but no one had thought about it before. Thanks, Leanne. Um, yes, well, um, actually, said approach, the Laser Boutique approached us. Oh, right. Okay, so and, we've got a shared um, idea thing here. <laughs> and um, the second that uh, that uh, we heard about the project, we thought, oh, my God, it's amazing. The synergies are just there. Um, at the time, Laser Boutique was only offering laser cl- laser laser treatments. That's our focus. Laser and this is hills. to humans, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> to humans. <laughs> um, so, I mean, our focus was was purely um, laser hair removal, skin tightening, non-surgical facelifts. Uh, we do non-surgical um, liposuction and all that. All of our treatments are pain-free, just like um, the horse's pedicure. And, yeah, when, said, uh, when animals in distress um, approached us and said, there is, you know, there's a project they want to, they want to partner with us uh, on. Um, project Pedicure just stood out, and uh, it was just, a, you know, instant match. And uh, we took it on board, and we thought, how amazing! What a, what a great project to be involved in. Yeah. And, um, and that's when we, we launched our, our manicure and pedicure services as part of, um, of Laser Boutique. So we thought okay. we'd. We had uh, also offered the traditional beauty treatments alongside, um, you know, um, a, a corporate social uh, uh, responsibility, I guess, project. Yeah. And, uh, and that's something that um, you've, that's always been very close to your heart is corporate so- social responsibility. Um, and you've come from a background of fundraising, etc. Yes. Now, what, what everyone's been dying to know, because I did maybe mention to them that there might have been something about a um, laser voucher to the, to the value of 550 yes. rand that they could get. Now, how on earth does this happen? And hopefully it benefits said. Yes, no, it does. <laughs> of course it does. So um, we're trying to appeal um, to the public to come and have a pedicure at the Laser Boutique. Um, a percentage of every pedicure that we perform um, is donated to said uh, to, shoe, um, to shoe the horses of Tempisa. Um and also, um, they will receive a 550 rand voucher that they can use towards any laser treatment of That's their choice. Awesome, yeah. Yes, and if you can't, um, if you can't get to Laser Boutique to have a pedicure, um, we're appealing to everybody to to support regardless. Um, mm-hmm. And you can donate directly to animals in distress. Um, the more the more support we get, obviously, the more shoes we could purchase to be able to shoe these horses. Um, to shoe a horse, it costs 85 rand for all four um, shoes. And this is being done once a week to most yes. of these horses. Yes, these horses work so hard um, that, uh, yeah, they have to be reshoed once a week. Mm. And uh, I think the, the whole project is quite wonderful because we're sort of paying it forward in three different ways. Not only are we shoeing the horses and making their work more comfortable, we're also keeping the uh, um, the communities in Tembi so warm and be a- they're able to to cook to receive their coal, yeah, yes. from the horses, especially during these cold winter months. Mm. You know, when we're all cozy in our homes with our heaters and our fluffy blankets, and you know, 
I think to myself, what do these poor people do in, in the townships? Mm. Um, and uh, and uh, thirdly, um, the project also um, uh, creates jobs because uh, there are men that actually uh, will take the horses out to the communities to deliver the coal, yes. and they charge a small fee, uh, which in turn obviously creates creates jobs, which yeah. is which is awesome. We need that in South Africa. Yeah. So, so Heather from Animals in Distress, well done for um, an amazing concept, and it's fantastic that the Laser Boutique has has come on to help you guys with this. I'm sure it's been a, a real pleasure. Oh, it really has, Leanne. And uh, yesterday we received uh, shoes for 50 horses, oh, and amazing. we're just really very, very grateful for for that from Laser Boutique. And just also to let your listeners know that the horses that we deal with mm-hmm. are constantly monitored. We are ever present in the areas of uh, uh, where the horses are. We have 14 coal yards. So you don't just shoe them and then shoe them? No, no, no. We never shoe them away <laughs> and they are in fantastic shape. And, yes, oh, that's great. the environment is, is not as savory as one would, would like for horses, but they are in great shape. The owners are meticulous about calling and we're ever present. So. Oh, that's so good. And now um, Animals in Distress has embarked on well, it's not embarking on. It's something that's been in the pipeline for about seven years, I believe, and that's um, saving money towards a fantastically huge project that everyone is very excited about. And when I drove in onto the property um, just the other day, I noticed a lot of construction going on and a lot of busy bees, which is really great to see. What's happening there? Oh, wow, Leanne. We've just been blessed to been able to um, rebuild our small and large animal hospital as well as our administration block. Uh, we've been on our farm in Midrand since the 80s, and our infrastructure has quite collapsed under the growth of the society and the extent of what we are offering. Um, this new facility will enhance uh, animal care within the society for the next half century. We've been around for 56 years, and the legacy of, of being able to build this building and you know, South Africa's really under the under the stick with all the things that are going wrong. But this is a, a good story. Yeah. This is about love. Our whole building was built with love. Um, our donors have come forward in leaps and bounds. And we've been able to produce something that will definitely stand the test of time. Mm. So, yes, uh, uh, we'll be getting the keys just shortly. End, oh, so end exciting. Of July, oh, well, second week in August. End of July was our initial date. And yeah, we we really are blessed in our. our oh, that's great! Um, and I think it's amazing that um, your organisation has survived over half a century. Uh, I think it happens so often where um, these organisations start off with good intentions and lots of hard work, and the work just gets too much and people lose hope. So it's really good to see that this is something that's got such longevity and is doing so well. Definitely, I think I think through our education, we we. Are, all our work is based in education, whether formal or peer, and that has changed our environment to such a degree that um, the sad times that we do uh, encounter are overshadowed by the joy and the and the triumphs that we've had. So yes, we definitely are not giving up, and we'll never give up, um, and we are making great strides into establishing a, a normalised veterinary care within the areas of our concern. So not only will we get a new building um, for ourselves, we'll be establishing historic consulting rooms within areas that have never, ever had that service. 
That's so fantastic. Heather from Animals in Distress and Svea from the Laser Boutique, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about Project Pedicure. And remember, you can uh, get a pedicure. You just ask for a Project Pedicure, I'm sure, um, at any Laser Boutique, and uh, you will receive a 550 rand discount towards laser treatment. Fabulous. Okay, that's all for heavy petting this week. Um, next week, same time, 10 until 11 on Cliff Central, and uh, we'll catch you then.